Greetings and welcome to the Five By, your reliable source for rapid fire board game reviews. This episode, Ruel hits us with his thoughts on Baseball Highlights 2045. First mention. I try to relax and paint some lovely landscapes in Sunset Over Water. We all hope Ruth can escape the ninth dimension in Gravwell, and Stephanie invites you to become one of us in Barker's Row. But first, do you have what it takes to lose a fortune in Last Will? Euro games typically involve collecting stuff, usually resources or money, and building an engine to amass stuff more efficiently. Last Will, designed by Vladimir Suhi and published in 2011 by Czech Games, cleverly turns that on its head. Instead of getting more stuff, in Last Will you're trying to get rid of stuff. Set in Victorian England, you play the nephews of a recently deceased millionaire. Your uncle was a workaholic who regrets not taking the time to enjoy life. So he's decided to leave his fortune to whichever relative can spend the most money. Players start with a set amount of money and then go about spending it extravagantly, recklessly. Each turn has three phases. First, players put down tokens on a track that determines turn order, how many cards they can draw from the deck, how many actions they'll get to take, and whether they get one or two hats. Hats, called Aaron Boys in the rulebook, are the workers of this worker placement game. You place hats on the board to claim face-up cards, change the value of properties, or add to the size of your player board. Once the hats have all been placed, then players take their actions. Actions are either playing a card or activating a card that's already been played. The cards are all highly thematic. You can go to dinner or the theater, meet up with an old school chum, buy a mansion, invite a companion to stay with you, hire a steward or valet, and so on. The theme in Last Will is so well realized. Every card makes sense. Activating a mansion means staying there, which costs money. More money if you have a friend or dog or horse there. If you don't activate a property, that means you're neglecting it, and its resale value will depreciate. If you're lucky and get the Wild Party card, the property depreciates fast because you trashed the place. Or you could play the Waiter card, and from then on, any card with a dining symbol will cost you more, because you have to tip big to maintain your relationship with your favorite waiter. The School Chum card lets you draw extra companion cards because he keeps you socially connected, and costs you money every turn because he's mooching off you. In a way, the skillful execution of theme is both Last Will's strength and its weakness, which brings me to my only real criticism of the game. Although there was racial diversity in Victorian England, which is the setting for Last Will, there is not a single non-white person anywhere in the art. And, although you never see the player character, it's very clear that you are playing a man. Your friends are all men, you can hire a valet but not a lady's maid, in fact almost everyone you interact with is a man. The only women anywhere in the game are girlfriends you can take out on a date or set up in your mansion. If the theme were less vivid, it would be easier for players who don't fit this rather narrow demographic to insert themselves into the game. When any player goes bankrupt, spending all their money and getting rid of all their property, players finish the round and the game ends. If no one goes bankrupt, the game ends after seven turns. Either way, the winner is the player with the least money, and negative amounts are allowed. At its heart, Last Will is a game about math. Each turn involves calculating the set of actions with the best return. I like math, and I like the feeling that each turn in Last Will is a math problem that has a solution. There's some uncertainty, mainly whether someone else will snap up the card you really want before you can get to it, but as long as you plan out a couple of potential paths for each turn, you end up feeling like you made the most of what was available to you. You have interesting choices in Last Will. Do you buy property, which lets you spend money each turn, but will have to be sold eventually, bringing unwanted income. Do you build up a lot of hired help, who make other actions more efficient, 
but may not be useful if you don't get the right cards in future turns? Or do you focus on one-time actions, which can really benefit you by being wildly expensive, especially if you add companions to them, but can take more actions than you have available, especially early in the game? I'm suspicious of games that say 2-5 to five players on the box, as they're often not good for 2, which is my most common player count. But I've played Last Will at every player count from 2-5, to five, and I'm impressed by how well the two-player game holds up. There are fewer face-up cards to choose from in a two-player game, and in the initial phase, each player places two tokens, one for their own choice and one to block their opponent out of one of the other choices. It keeps the game feeling tight and competitive. Last Will has an expansion called Getting Sacked, which I have not played, and a follow-up game called The Prodigal's Club, which I have. The Prodigal's Club was designed to be played as a standalone or together with Last Will. I played them both together, and I don't think that was an improvement over Last Will on its own. It was just... more. I would say check out The Prodigal's Club if you like Last Will, but wish it were bigger and lasted longer. Personally, I like Last Will the way it is. A tidy, mathsy game that lets you take your horse to the theater. And that's Last Will. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not buying mansions for my girlfriends to stay in, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. Hi, this is Ruel Gaviola. Today I'm looking at Baseball Highlights 2045, designed by Mike Fitzgerald, with art by William Bricker, and published by Eagle Griffin Games in 2015. Baseball Highlights 2045 is a deck-building game set in a future where baseball players are comprised of humans, cyborgs, and robots. Each player takes on the role of manager of a team made up of 15 rookie and veteran baseball player cards. The goal is to win four games of a seven-game World Series. These games, or mini-games, are comprised of you and your opponent taking turns playing six of your 15 cards. Each card depicts its purchase price, buying power, threatened hits, and immediate effect, if any. When you play a card, you'll first resolve any immediate effects. For example, if you play a card with immediate single, then you immediately put a pawn on first base. Next, you threaten hits. If your card says single and double, then you put two pawns into the batter's box. Now your opponent plays their card. Like you, they'll resolve any immediate effects first, such as cancel one hit. So, if you were threatening a single and double, they would cancel any one hit. In this example, they'd cancel the double, but your single would be good and you'd put that pawn on first base. You'd now have two runners since your previous immediate effect put a runner on first, who then moved to second base on the single. Then your opponent would threaten any hits and the game would continue until both of you have played your six cards. Runs are scored just like in real baseball, as you attempt to get base runners over home plate. Whoever scores the most runs wins the minigame. After each minigame, you and your opponent gather the cards you played and total up your buying power. You'll purchase more powerful free agents from six available cards and add them to your team. For each free agent purchased, you'll send one player to the minor leagues, which means that card is removed from play. After buying free agents, you'll start a new minigame. The first to four wins gets to hoist the World Series 2045 Championship Trophy. As a baseball fan, go Dodgers, it was love at first play for me in Baseball Highlights 2045. You don't have to be a fan of America's pastime to appreciate baseball highlights, though. I've played with gamers who aren't into baseball at all, but love this game as much as I do. Designer Mike Fitzgerald has done an extraordinary job of capturing the excitement of baseball in an elegant and satisfying blend of deck building and hand management. Instead of a stats-heavy, season-long simulation like Stratomatic Baseball, the game is an ESPN highlight reel of all the best plays. No dice to roll, no charts to look up results, 
Only six cards played by each player until a winner is determined. Each minigame always impresses me with how much it feels like I've watched the real thing. There are so many thrilling moments as you and your opponent try to outthink each other. In fact, there's nothing more satisfying than your opponent threatening a home run and playing a cancel hit from your hand. The way threatened hits and immediate effects work together is a brilliant design and I love this back and forth. It gives you the feeling of managing in-game strategies without having to know all of the intricacies of baseball. These are just a few of the choices you'll make throughout baseball highlights. You'll quickly learn the different types of players. Cyborgs are tough pitchers against naturals. Robots are tough outs against naturals. Naturals are outstanding fielders and produce the most buying power. Then during the buy phase, you'll try to find the free agents that match up well with your opponent's team. Do you specialize in one type of player, or do you diversify, hoping that you'll be able to counter your opponent's moves? For example, if you notice them buying a lot of free agent naturals, then you can stack your deck with cyborgs. Do you buy the high-priced player who can threaten and cancel multiple hits, but has zero buying power? Or do you buy the lower-priced and not-as-powerful player, but who has a lot of buying power? Are you going to be involved in a pitcher's duel, or are you going for a full-out offensive outburst? I've played games on both ends of the spectrum, and they've all been enjoyable. It's all of these choices that add up to a wonderful baseball simulation and a highly engaging game. While the original rules call for three mini-games with bi-phases before the World Series, they do allow you to skip the mini-games and do three straight bi-phases. It's my preferred way of playing. And while baseball highlights can be played by one to four players, it's best with two. Playing three or four seems odd to me. You're comparing cards against more than one opponent, and it dilutes what should be a one-on-one -on -one battle between managers. It also plays well as a solo game, as you match up against a deck of 15 randomly chosen free agents. It can be brutal at first since your starting rookies and veterans don't have as many abilities, but you'll have a fighting chance as your team grows stronger after each buy phase. Most of my solo games go 6 or 7 minigames, and I've gone down to the final card for the win a few times, and it's absolutely exhilarating. Not as thrilling as Gibson taking Eckersley Yard in 1988, but still worthy of my own personal board game highlight reel. While hardcore baseball geeks might miss the chance to go lefty versus righty, or call a defensive shift, the game's essence is here, whether it's playing just the right card to knock in the game-winning run, or drawing a card to make that final inning save. Even if you're not a baseball fan, I'd highly recommend Baseball Highlights 2045 for its richly rewarding play. It's a game I'm willing to play any time of the year, and personally, I think it's even better when accompanied by a Dodger Dog and a beer. This has been Ruel Gaviola for the 5 by Find me on Twitter at Ruel Gaviola, that's R-U-E-L-G-A-V-I-O-L-A. Or visit my website, ruelgaviola.com. Last year, Pencil First Games published Cherbaceous, a Dr. Finn game about planting herb gardens based primarily around the wonderful art of Beth Sobel. It's a light, quick, thinky, fun game that my family really enjoys, and it just so happens that Ruth covered it way back in Episode 4. So when I heard that Dr. Finn, Beth, Eduardo Baraf, and Keith Mateka were getting the band back together for Sunset Over Water, I backed again without even knowing what the game was about, and I have not regretted it. In Sunset Over Water, we are artists hiking to beautiful locations to paint landscapes, which we then sell for points. There are several mechanisms at use in this game. The first is a 5x5 grid of the most beautiful landscapes you will ever see. Beth Sobel really outdid herself this time. I would be pleased to have any of these hanging in my house. As a matter of fact, after playing, my daughter asked if there's a way to get Beth Sobel's autograph. To hike across these wondrous landscapes and paint them, you must first use your planning cards, which say what time you get up for determining turn order, which direction you may go, and for what distance, and how many paintings you can do. 
Painting a landscape is merely picking up a card that you have traversed that is devoid of meeples. Once you have moved and painted, if the features on the landscapes now in your collection match those requested on any of the current Renown cards, you may sell them to complete that commission. Sunset Over Water is not like Fresco or the New Science where the earlier you get up the more you can do. These are a fairly decent mix of distances, directions, and number of paintings. So what would determine how early you get up? Well, for starters, you randomly draw three of your planning cards and choose which one to use, placing the other two back under the deck for later. So that limits your choice. Also, different cards limit which direction and distance you can travel in, so there may only be one that allows you to reach the cards you want based on the current commission cards. There are also the daily goal cards, which are worth two points. Each round you should consider if that's a goal you can meet, but only the last player to meet the requirements of the goal keeps the card, so that may push you to choose a later start time. Lastly, awareness of the other players is very important. The 5x5 grid and commission cards do not refill until the end of the round. Therefore, it is quite possible that the commission cards you want may be taken by someone else, or the grid stake can be changed to block you from achieving your desired goals. The Tugiverse for going early versus later is a serious consideration really makes up the bulk of the game for me. I will say that in a majority of my plays, either solo or two-player, the change in grid state has not been a major consideration, as the 5x5 grid does not shrink or expand based on player count. Just for my personal edification, I did simulate a four-player game by playing all four players myself, and as I suspected, the grid state is absolutely a greater consideration in four-player games. So, I do wish the grid state changed a little for player counts to make it tighter for a two-player game. Also, that change would help with the portability, as the 5x5 grid is a real table hog for such a light game. As it is, this is the right weight of game to take to a restaurant and play, but the table space would be too prohibitive. As for solo play, there are some minor differences in setup. You don't have daily goals, and you replace four of the cards in the grid with ranger stations that you can traverse through to instantly refill the landscape cards around it. The timing of the planning cards you play also affects how the game reacts by either refilling the grid or removing commission cards. Lastly, you are assigned an inspiration card that gives you a one-point bonus for completing commission cards of that feature type. I've really enjoyed my two solo plays. Like the regular game, they are quick, with regular pauses to really think out what you're about to do. But also like the regular game, there's a lot of randomness in the game between which commission cards are available, which planning cards are currently available to you, and what landscape cards are out. My first solo game I was assigned the sun symbol as my inspiration, and for the course of the game each sun-based commission card that came out was of high enough renown that I was forced to discard it as I only had late wake-up planning cards. It was a little frustrating. I've had similar bad luck during the main game where I've had no way of completing certain commission cards because some features like a single water landscape hadn't come out yet. There is some in-game mitigation for this as you can focus on completing the daily goals and you do get points for leftover landscape card features at the end of the game, but it's not nearly as many points as completing commissions. Sunset Over Water is light and quick enough that the randomness doesn't bother me much, but if you're the kind of person who dislikes random situations that impede your progress, then this may not be a game for you. Another mixed bag in the game is the quality of the game itself. As previously stated, I think the art is amazing. The box size is great, the rules are clear, and the little details like the meeples each having different hats is a fantastic touch from Helen Chu. And I appreciate that they considered making each wake-up time unique so there are no ties. But I do have to ding the game a little for card quality. This is a game where you're picking up cards in a grid. Thicker cards that were less easy to bend would have been nice, as this is not a situation where you can just slide a card out without disturbing the whole grid. As this is a game that my whole family enjoys, including my 7-year-old son who helped me with my solo games, 
I may end up sleeving the landscape cards, though then they would no longer fit in the insert. Luckily this isn't a game that relies on the cards to remain in pristine condition. Anyway, that sunset over water. A fast, fun, light, beautiful table hog of a game. I don't know if this, like Herbaceous, the art came first, but like Herbaceous, Sunset Over Water backs up the beauty with a fun game. This was Mike, and if you want to discuss Sunset Over Water further, you can reach me on Twitter, at Mike Grizzly. Hello 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here, and this week I wanted to talk about Gravwell Escape from the Ninth Dimension. Designed by Corey Young, this chaotic game was originally published by Cryptozoic back in 2013. It's since moved to Renegade Game Studios, who started publishing in 2014, and regardless of which edition you have available, what you'll get inside the box is a game guaranteed to twist and warp your brain in the most delicious way. At its heart, Gravwell is a race for two to four players, but this is a race game unlike any other I can think of and that's part of why it continues to hit the table years after being added to my collection. Each player's ship begins the game trapped within a strange dimension, having somehow survived the trip through a black hole. Desperate to find their way home, players need to harness the odd physics of their surroundings, using the gravity of both floating debris and their opponent's ships to slingshot themselves through the warp gate at the end of the board's spiraling track. But the exit home is somewhat unstable and will close after the first ship passes through, so players are racing each other to get there. But it's not a typical race, as most of the time players are forced to move towards their nearest source of gravity. This means that, in Gravwell, getting too far out in front typically means you're about to find yourself speeding uncontrollably towards the singularity in which you started, so players have to balance staying close enough to their competition to be able to move in the right direction, while positioning themselves for the final sprint when conditions finally line up. The game ends either when someone reaches the warp gate or the end of a sixth round, at which point whoever's closest to the finish line wins. Each round has two phases, an initial draft followed by a series of turns in which fuel cards, also known as mining cards, are played and resolved. The name of the cards simply depends on which edition you have, but they play the same regardless. The 26 cards in the deck each represent an element from A through Z, and each also gives 1 to 10 spaces worth of movement. But the cards also come in three flavors which decide how you move. The majority are green standard fuel cards which cause your ship to move towards the nearest source of gravity. In addition, the purple repulsor movement cards move you away from that nearest source, while the teal tractor beam cards don't move you at all, but instead move everything else on the board a number of spaces towards your own ship. Each turn, played cards are going to be revealed simultaneously and then resolved in alphabetical order, an order almost guaranteed to screw up everybody's plans more often than not. Unless you're playing an extremely early or late letter, you're often pinning your hopes and resolving your movement at the perfect moment without an awful lot to base those hopes upon. This leads to plenty of chaos and laughter as things go wrong, along with some amazingly satisfying moments when your desperate plan actually works out. Each player does have the ability to use an emergency stop to cancel a fuel card before it activates, but since you can only do this once per round and you'll be playing out your entire hand of six cards, deciding whether to use it or save it can be pretty tricky. One of the things I really like about Gravwell is the semi-open draft that starts each round. Pairs of cards are dealt out until there are three times as many pals as there are players. Each player will draft an order from last to first place until they have the six cards they'll be playing in the round. But since each pair consists of one face up and one face down card, you and your opponents only know half of the card you're actually getting. This leads to some Hail Mary drafting situations when you're really hoping for luck in the unknown cards. It means you can never be quite 
sure if an opponent has the one card guaranteed to screw you over. I'm not a card counter by any means, but the fact that not all cards are used each round, and the fact that often you know someone has a tractor beam, but not if they're going to be able to use a repulsor, well, it leads to a level of uncertainty I enjoy. Rounds are quick, and the game itself takes roughly 20 to 30 minutes to play, so this high amount of randomness in the draft, along with the outright chaos in the resolution, doesn't actually bother me at all. I've played Gravwell with gamers and family members alike, and I've had great times with both. The more players you have, the more chaotic and less strategic things are, but I've enjoyed it at every count. The only issue I actually have with the game, well, it's teaching the damn thing. At its core, it's pretty simple. Select cards from the pool till you have six, then play the cards and move your ships. For less experienced gamers, the concept of the half-hidden draft and the card resolution order aren't usually a big deal either. But explaining how movement resolves and how to determine your nearest source of gravity gets tricky. So typically I end up talking through a few sample turns and then teaching as we go through the first round, something I'm not typically most comfortable at. But Grav is a game that needs to be experienced to be understood. Learning from an experienced player is definitely the way to go if possible. So if you can get players over the initial hurdle of having their brain warped as they figure out what direction they're even going in, what you get is a fast-playing, easily set-up race game that I've been able to play everywhere from a dimly lit bar to a large gaming convention. It's a decently portable game, although if I could get the infamous Travwell, a gorgeous wooden travel version, well, I'd be ecstatic. My copy's holding up well after a lot of play, and when I finally wear the thing out, there's a good chance we'll immediately replace it, even if I do prefer my original box art. So I highly recommend checking it out if it sounds at all interesting. Just know that your brain might end up feeling a bit mushy by the end of your interstellar trip. And until next time, you can find me on sequentialgamer.wordpress.com or on Twitter at that's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. Step right up, step right up, and witness this mild-mannered board game enthusiast tell you all about a game that will surprise and delight. For at this midway, you'll encounter attractions from the forest reaches in an attempt to attract every rube to your own personal carnival of curiosities. Ladies and gentlemen, kids of all ages, this is Barker's Row. Barker's Row, released in 2018 from Overworld Games, is a card game where you play a carnival barker trying to attract visitors to your sideshow. You do this by hiring new attractions who each have unique powers to increase your big top bravado. You begin the game with a grandstand to hold your eminent visitors and a hand of three attraction cards. These attractions, taking a nod from the sideshows of yore, are the stars of your own personal yet somewhat meager circus, and are each suited in one of four types, beast, freaks, oddities, and horrors. Barkers also start with their token on level four of the Strongman Tower, which players move along throughout the game. More on that later. In the middle of the table is a shared area which contains the Barker's Row and the Midway. The Barker's Row is made up of three cards face down. These cards show one of the four suits or a wild, on the back, any number one, two, or three on the front. On a player's turn, they pick one of the face-down cards from the Barker's Row and flip it over to play onto the midway. If there are enough cards that match the suit of an attraction in a player's hand whose point value equals or exceeds their current strongman level, that player can hire that attraction and introduce them to their sideshow. So, for an example, you have Ghost Girl in your hand, who's an attraction in the horror suit. 
There will need to be, in the midway, horror cards whose point value on the front adds up to at least four if this is the first attraction you're hiring. So, you've hired your first attraction and now it's time to introduce them to your circus. And when I say you introduce them, I mean you actually introduce them. The midway cards have adjectives like wondrous or amazing or astounding. So when you hire your attraction, you, in your best Barker voice, introduce the newest member of your circus family using those adjectives. It's a little detail, but dang, did it make things that much more fun. Once you've made your big announcement, you go up one level on the strongman tower, making it just a bit more difficult to hire that next attraction. You also add two visitors to your grandstand by grabbing a couple of meeples. You place the attraction in front of your grandstand for all of your visitors to witness. Lastly, you grab a new attraction to add to your hand in hopes of hiring them later. Each attraction has a unique power that you can use at any point in the game, but once you use it, that attraction is retired and is moved out of the limelight of your big top. Play continues until one player has filled their grandstand with visitors, and that person is declared the winner. With a game like this that really has to commit to a theme, one would hope that every attention would be paid to the visual detail, and Barker's Row has nailed the style of the the turn-of-the-century sideshow. Each attraction card is artistically bold, and even the meeples that grace your grandstand are stylistically on point. Since we're talking art and components, I might as well address my one negative, the Strongman Tower. This mechanic is great for gameplay, but the actual physical tower is a bit wobbly and therefore it can be a bit of a distraction during gameplay. But when it comes to the actual game, Barker's Row is solid. It plays two to four players in just about an hour, and it's a quick game to learn and to set up. I really enjoy the mini press-your-luck aspect of the game, with knowing what suits are coming into the midway without knowing the value. Oftentimes, I found myself weighing the options between quickly getting a less powerful card out and in front of my big top, or waiting and hoping that my opponents would play a suit that I dearly needed, and that those cards would still be there when my turn came around again. I wouldn't hesitate to bring this out with more experienced gamers looking for lighter fare, or for fairly new gamers looking for a fun time. Barker's Row retails for $39.99, and on the surface, some might find that a bit on the high side for a game of this weight. But considering the quality of every aspect of this game, I can easily justify a $40 price tag for both the component quality and the number of times I've replayed it in the relatively short time I've had it in my possession. Barker's Row is an attraction you do not want to miss. For the 5 by, I'm Stephanie Stone Rob, and until next time, stay playful. Thanks for listening to the 5 by. If you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games, or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 5 by Games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810, or listen to the 5 by on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. You can find all of our links at 5 by Games.com. The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.